0: Welcome to Wholeness and Holiness Podcast. Here we will deepen your understanding of human and spiritual integration so you can live the life of peace and fulfillment God has for you. I'm your host, Margaret Vasquez. I hold a degree in theology and am a licensed professional clinical counselor and certified trauma therapist. Join me weekly for practical applications of the spiritual life. No part of this audio is to be used as mental health treatment or clinical advice. Please see a licensed mental health professional for personal consultation. Hi, and welcome to Wholeness and Holiness Podcast. I'm your host for today, Margaret Vasquez, and I am delighted to be sharing a story, it was a very personal experience that happened to me back in 1997. Um, and. It was actually, I I lived with a serial killer and it's a true story. And um, the reason I share it is because it was such a a dramatic and profound lesson to me of just how operative the Lord is in our lives on a daily basis, which is so speaks to the aspect of human and spiritual integration. You know, I think a lot of times we can think that, um, (laughs) that, God, uh, kind of, he's for church, you know, the Holy Spirit is for church. It's for, he's for church and churchy things or, so um, you know, we don't, we don't really get just how <laughs> practically involved he wants to be in the details of our lives. So, I, and so I share this story. Um, and then I'm going to draw some, some learning lessons from it at the end here. So some, some takeaway points. So, um, 1997, I was moving, um, from Leesburg, Florida over to Tampa, Florida. I had been doing youth ministry and youth ministers don't make a lot of money. And so I did not have a lot of money to relocate and, to uh, first month's rent, last month's rent, security deposit, etc. And so, um, had contacted a student, um, former, Franciscan student who was living in the Tampa area, but she was living in a very small apartment and didn't have room for a roommate, but said, you know, come on down. There's, there are always people looking for roommates and there's a classified um, little paper that comes out once a week and I'll help you find a safe roommate situation foreshadowing. So I went over to Tampa and happened to meet a couple of guys who had put a, a classified ad didn't know they were guys until I showed up. But I, I met them and they—they and they were just—they were businessmen. They seemed very safe. Of course, it was 1997, and and I had never looked at the serial killer before, so um, so I wasn't as cautious as I might be now nowadays. But I met these guys and they—I my gut told me they were safe, and, and they really were. And um, it was a very platonic relationship. There were three. Bedrooms and three roommates, nobody shared a bedroom and there was nothing, um, nothing inappropriate happening. And, um, we were just sharing the kitchen and that kind of thing. And, um, but everybody pretty much kept to themselves. And then one of the gentlemen, after I would only live there a few weeks, he had to move down to Miami for business. So now we needed another roommate and, um, and, Gary, the the roommate who was remaining. And I had discussed that we knew we were looking for another person. Um, but I left for the weekend to go visit my brother. And it, as it turned out while I was gone, he happened to mention at work that, um, we were looking for another roommate. And, um, one of the men who were work who was working there said he was looking for, um, for somewhere to live. And since that place of business supposedly (laughs) did background checks, Gary thought he must be safe. And so without him saying anything to me or me meeting him or anything, he let, he let him move in. And um, as it turned out to save money, that place of business was not running background checks. They were, their thought was if we have people fill something out saying that we're allowed to run a background check on them, that'll kind of like, de facto weed people out and, um, the bad people <laughs> vote themselves out of the situation. And so we'll save money and not have to run these things. Um, so as it turns out, this, this fellow moved in and, um, his name is Ray, Ray Lamar Johnston. And I came back from visiting my brother returned to this, to this person had moved into our apartment who I'd never met, didn't know he was going to be moving in, didn't even know that Gary had found someone. And the only way I can describe the intense reaction I had to this human being was, it, it was like the Holy Spirit was throwing up inside me. It was such a complete spiritual revulsion to, to being anywhere in this person's presence, I mean, anywhere within like, you know, even when they were in the apartment, I mean, it was just, it was constant, unrelenting and complete. Like there was no question about it. It was, it was intense and it, and it didn't make sense, you know, kind of really didn't jive, um, with his appearance because he was a businessman. They, um, they sold cell phones to, um, to businesses. Um, and so he was always wearing, you know, Highly starched shirt, super clean cut. Um, I mean, cufflinks. It, it was just, you know, really kind of dressed to the nines all the time because he was always hobnobbing with, um, you know, big CEOs and things like that. And so, um, so the just like nasty dirty reaction that was kind of going off in my, in my stomach, you know, that everything inside me was going lights and sirens. This guy is bad and dangerous. Get away. Um, didn't make sense. It didn't match up. And yet it was, I mean, I had no question about it. It was, it was pretty clear. (laughs) So, so time marched on and I began trying to express this to Gary, you know, you know, Ray's not, he's not good. Like he's not a good guy. And, and um and Gary said yeah I know you know I know you know some some guys are different like he just I know he doesn't clean up his space when he uses the stove and I know he doesn't take out the garbage when it's his turn and I just thought wow he does not get this like this is not a male female difference you know I grew up with all brothers I I know what what guys are like this is not that and but I couldn't articulate it you know something that was so abstract And I was only 27 at the time and, and it didn't seem like Gary was a believer. So I didn't know how to express, you know, the Holy Spirit's telling me this and in a way that, that he was going to understand or, or give any credence to it. So, um, I just kind of frantically started looking for other living options and yet without really any money or resources or connections, I was stuck there and, that weekend was the first weekend in June. And, uh, you know, so it was all of June, all of July going through August. And on August 19th, I happened to be sitting in my bedroom because I, you know, I didn't hang out in the living room. None of us really did. I'd watched the tiny little television if I was going to watch TV in my own room. And so the evening of August 19th, I was watching television. I think I was watching Jeopardy or something like that. I think it was Jeopardy and Jeopardy ended. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go up to St. Timothy's is Catholic church, um, probably only about three or four miles away. And that's, I would typically go over there in the evenings and pray. And often it was a big parish. A lot of times there were meetings going on in the evenings. And so the church would be unlocked and I would be able to go in and just be in front of the blessed sacrament and, um, just in by the tabernacle and just praying and, um, church would be quiet. It was nice. It was just nice, dark, you know, but the vigil candle and all that. And it w- it was good. It was a good setting. It was quiet. So that evening, um, Jeopardy finishes and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go pray. And, um, now this was 1997. So the vast majority of people Um, I think it's safe to say didn't have cell phones. I think some people had probably had car phones back then. It wasn't typical for people to have cell phones and I didn't certainly didn't. I had a pager and, but I got up to leave my room and, um, you know, put my hand on my doorknob to turn the doorknob to open it. And I felt very clearly from the Lord, take your pager, give the number to Gary and have him call you if anything happens or have him page you, I should say, if anything happens. And, um, unfortunately I told the Lord, no, (laughs) I was like, no, I am, I am not doing that. Like Gary and I aren't buddies, you know, we're not friends. He's going to think that I think we're closer than we are. If I do that, like, that's embarrassing. I don't want to do that. And, um, so continued to try to leave my bedroom. Second time I went to turn the doorknob, the same thing happened. I mean, it was just this very clear the lord was saying to take my pager give the number to gary and have him page me if anything happened and again i told the lord no again you know just afraid of feeling embarrassed and feeling awkward and feeling like gary's going to think i'm i'm weird or something and so i refused a third time i'm <laughs> trying to turn the doorknob the lord again this time like really really clear really really strong And I thought, okay, you know, I I know enough scripture to know, you know, the, you know, this is the third time I should really listen and respond to the Lord. And so, um, so more out of kind of fresh frustration and exasperation than any kind of true obedience. I don't think I really get any points for that, but, um, I picked up my pager kind of in a huff and, um, frustration and went into it gary's room and kind of awkwardly kind of hemmed and hawed and said um this is kind of weird but can i give you my pager number and you page me if anything happens and um you know he just kind of looked at me quizzically but he was you know respectful but still you know kind of pausing like what what could possibly happen and um but but he was he was good he was you know he was cordial and he was willing to be cooperative and stuff and so he's like um yeah, yeah, you know, uh, sure. Right. And so he picks up a pen and he takes the number, writes my pager number down on a little tablet of paper that was on his bedside table. And, um, so I left and didn't think anything of it. Took my pager and I, I left it clipped to the visor in my car as I went in to the church. And I really, truly did not give it another thought. Once I got out of the awkwardness of trying to communicate that to Gary, once I got out of the apartment, I was like, wow, that was weird. Didn't give it another thought. Went into the church and was praying. Don't really know how long I was in there. Um, don't recall. Um, but I, once I was finished, I went back out to my car and um, just kind of r- really more out of habit than anything. It's not like I expected there, there to be a message, but I checked my um, I checked my pager. It was on clip to my visor. Pull it down and I check it. And the way a pager would work for if, the, if those of you who are too young to remember pagers, you'd push a little button on it and it would tell you, it would have like a timestamp, like the time that the page came in. And then it would give the number. And so I pushed the little button to see if there were any pages. And it said 820 and I, oh, okay. Somebody had paged me while I was in there, and I pushed the button again, and it said nine one one, and then um, a number after that. That heck, you know, so what what had happened? I recognized the number as Gary's number. So what Gary had done as a way, a kind of shorthand way of letting me know there was an emergency, is instead of just entering his number, he entered nine one one, and his number so I got the message, right? And so I left there and um, stopped at a payphone. There used to be payphones. (laughs) There was a Taco Bell on the corner, um, not too far from St. Timothy's Catholic Church where I'd been praying. And I stopped there at the payphone thinking, I'm not going to go home if there's some sort of emergency. I don't know what in the world it is. And so I'm going to call before I go home. And so I called Gary and he was really worked up and flustered. And, um, I think there were some, uh, some expletives in there and said, Oh my goodness. Like, you know, gosh, you know, Ray is such a jerk. And he was really, really going on. He was really emoting. And, um, he said, man, he was in this mood and, and he, he broke a lamp and he was throwing things. And he said, but he's out of here. You know, he's, he left, um, the left the apartment and, um, it so it's safe, you know, it's safe to come home now. He's not here, okay. So he said, I paged you. This is very important. He said, I paged you as soon as he left. So I thought, wow, that was probably in Gary's mind. It was like, oh, Margaret said to pager if anything happened. I didn't think anything was going to happen, but here we go. It did. So, so he had paged me. So I returned back to the apartment expecting. Ray to not be there because of what Gary had said while well, I pulled up and Ray's car was there so um, so I I went into the apartment and um, just kind of had was always somewhat cautious around Ray because I didn't trust him at all I always felt for the entire time he was living there I felt like this person is capable of anything I do not trust them any further than I can throw them so um So when I went in, knowing his car was there, I just thought I'm going to be really low key. I'm going to make my lunch for work and I'm going to mind my own business, get changed for bed, go in my room and lock my door as I uh, always did because I was sharing an apartment with two guys. And um so um I was at the island in the kitchen making my lunch for work the next day. And Gary came in there again, emoting about Ray. And so I... I, sh- you know, I shushed him and, and he, you know, he kind of, he looked at me like questioningly and I whispered, he's here, his car's out there. And Gary said, he's not here. And I said, no, he's, he's here, his car's there. And so we both turned at the same time and looked down the hallway to where um, the master bedroom was the one room at the very end of the hallway because that was Ray's bedroom and the door was closed. And so when we both, we both turned and looked seeing that the door was closed and we both looked back at each other kind of like, well, I wonder if he's in there or not. And I just looked at at Gary as though I didn't have any intention of walking down the hallway to check to see if, if Ray was in there. And so Gary, um, you know, he kind of, he kind of put his shoulders back, puffed his chest, chest out and kind of worked up his courage and walked down the hall and he opened the door and could tell he was, he was, looking around in the bedroom, you know, around and, um, just kind of still with his hand on the doorknob, but peeked his head around all in the room and, and the, and the bedroom or um, the bathroom that was attached. And then he came back he closed the door and he came back down the hallway and heard yeah, down the hallway to the kitchen where I was. And he said, he's not in there. He's not here. Okay. So I just finished making my lunch and, you know, as Gary kind of filled me in, on um, just exactly what a, what a foul mood Ray was in when he was breaking things and had thrown a lamp and everything before he had left. So, um, it wasn't really, again, wasn't really shocking to me. It was more validating to me, but, so I went to bed, went in my bedroom, closed the door, locked the door, and not very much longer at all after I had gotten in my room. I mean, really minutes after I, once I would changed clothes, gotten in bed, I heard Gary, or I'm sorry, I heard Ray go into Gary's room and I knew it was his room because his room was right on the other side of mine. He went in there and I heard Ray tell Gary, and that's all you're going to get. And so my deductive reasoning told me that Ray was paying Gary back some of the money that he had borrowed from him because he was always borrowing money from him for bills and, uh, and things like that because they they weren't friends, but they worked at the same place. And so there's kind of more of a relationship there. And yet again, not friends. So, so Ray told Gary, that's all you're going to get. And he proceeded to cuss such a string of expletives as I've never heard in my life, and truly went on and on and on with that for for what seemed like ten or fifteen minutes. I mean, it was really it was really ridiculous, and it, it didn't. I mean, it it was just it was so continual that it wasn't even arguing with Gary about something. I mean, he was just going on and on and on and on just cussing and cussing and cussing and cussing. And I was getting fed up. I I thought, my goodness, like give it a break. Like this, like I'm trying to go to sleep. I have to go to work the next day. Like just cut it out. You don't, you know, you don't live in a vacuum. You have other people you live with, like cut it out. And he wasn't stopping. And I mean, this just went on and on 15, maybe even 20 minutes. And so finally I thought, okay, somebody needs to do something or say something to snap him out of this mode. And so I thought, okay, what I can do without being too challenging and confrontational is I'll make light of the situation. And yet in such a way that I still get my point across. So my, uh, (laughs) my genius idea, I say that, very sarcastically. My genius idea was to open the door and say potty mouth, potty mouth. Ray is a potty mouth just to snap him out of it, to make him aware that like he's being ridiculous and just to cut it out. And the most amazing thing happened as I, I, you know, kind of contrived this plan and I reached my right arm up to my left shoulder to grab my sheets and throw them off of me so I could get up out of the bed. I did that and I woke up the next morning. Just like that. I mean, that was the absolute last conscious moment of that night of August 19th was reaching up for my sheets to throw them off so I could get up, open the door and confront Ray in this playful way, but still confront him. And <clears throat> I remember looking at the the clock right about the time that I was gonna do that and it was about ten twenty. And um and I was always an early riser. So I fell sound asleep. didn't woke up the next morning, sunlight was pouring through my windows. I'm thinking, my goodness, what time is it? Like, how long did I sleep? This is, this is crazy. I mean, Gary was even gone to work by the time I got up. I mean, it was not just like he was already up, he was gone. And so I, I thought, man, and I, you know, I looked at the clock and I don't recall what time it was, but it was much later. I usually wake up when it was barely dawn, if not before that. And this was shocking. I mean, I had just been in the deepest, deepest, deepest sleep. And so I got up and I started going, you know, through the apartment. I came out of my room, saw that Gary was gone, and I saw that the door to Ray's room was closed. And I could hear his shower going, and I thought, okay, he's still here, whatever. And so I started using my bathroom um, that was across the hall from my room. And I was back and forth from the, you know, the bathroom into my room and brushing my teeth and different things in and out. And my path with Ray never crossed that morning. Thank the Lord. Just never crossed. We never, we never saw each other. We were never out of our rooms at the same time walking in the hallway or anything. I mean, that's really pretty, pretty amazing because it was not a big apartment. And I left and went to work and didn't think anything more of it. And that evening I came home from work and made a little bit of dinner. I think it was a ramen or something like that. It was really cheapo food. And I was sitting in my room and I was watching the five o'clock news. And I remember the um all of a sudden they were breaking a story and they said this woman was last seen at this Publix, which was a grocery store on the And I can't say on the corner, it makes it sound like it was too close, but just a couple of miles away that I usually, where I usually shopped. And, um, and then it said, and she lived in this apartment complex. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my apartment complex. And then it said, um, let's see what else was. The next thing was, uh, the person, um, oh, her, her body was left in the retention pond behind this Catholic church. It was St. Timothy's where I was praying the night before. And this person was last seen using her ATM card. And it was my roommate's face. It was Ray's face big on the screen. Um, because apparently when you use an ATM, it takes a f- photo of you at the time for, for situations <laughs> like this, perhaps. And, um, and so I was, I mean, I was, I was sh- like, just stunned. I mean, it, it wasn't surprising because, again, for the past two and a half and plus months, I had just continually thought, I don't trust him. He's capable of anything. Um, and yet to actually see it unfolding in front of my face was another story. Um, obviously brought it home, <laughs> no pun intended. And so the the particularly like difficult part was I didn't know if Ray was home or not right? I didn't know if he was in his bedroom watching the same story and knowing that I was watching it as well. And so I had to stuff my emotions so completely to try to muster up some, some sense of like, I'm completely like just bored and going through my day when I come out of my bedroom and I go through the apartment to see if he's there. So I stuffed my emotions as as best I could kind of try to really get a grip. And I was just walking through the apartment, trying to be as nonchalant as possible. And, um, and the guys weren't there. He wasn't there. Neither was Gary. And so I threw the police lock on the door and called the tips line to let them know where there was a club in South Tampa where he typically hung out. And so I called the tips line. The tips line was busy. And I thought, I just need to to get out of here as quickly as possible. And so I grabbed a bag and started just cramming clothes in the bag. And um, I thought, okay, is there anything of, of any importance, of any kind of value that I need to take with me? And I thought, oh, this, the spare key to my car. For some reason that occurred to me. And uh, just what can I get my hands on quickly? So I pulled this old purse down out of the top shelf in that closet. And I knew I had stuck um, my spare key in the inside pocket to the purse. Well, I pulled the purse out and I went to reach inside it into the inside pocket and the inside pocket was turned inside out and the key was gone. And so that was really kind of the icing on the cake. And so I, um, I just got out of there as quickly as possible. I went to, uh, to that friend of mine who was at the apartment complex, um, just down the street where she was there for dinner, I knew she was going to be having dinner with her parents that evening at their apartment. And so I went over there and, um, I'm, I'm sure I was just as frantic as you can imagine. And I was pounding on the door and she opened the door and I, in the middle of hyperventilating was saying, he killed somebody, he killed somebody, he killed somebody. And so, um, she pushed me back out of the door and closed the door behind behind her and stepped out with me. And she said, you're going to give my parents a heart attack. They're elderly, calm down. And so I told her what was going on. And so she said, okay, she'll, she'd come with me. So she grabbed her purse and, you know, left, came with me. And I said, okay, I need to use the phone at your apartment to call the tips line. And for some reason, she, she was kind of paranoid about that. Didn't want to be connected to it in any way, shape or form. So I stopped at a pay phone for me to call the tips line, which I did and told them where he usually hung out because he was always talking about this place. And, um, so I told him where it was, uh, it was Molly O's in South Tampa on Dale Mabry. I'm pretty sure. So, um, and then we went to her apartment and then what, what proceeded to happen was, you know, the SWAT team came and went through, our apartment. And when they did that, then they found sneakers of his that matched prints to another murder. And, and then what ended up coming out was he had this long rap sheet of kidnappings and assaults and um, all these and um, rapes, I believe, all these crimes against women. So um, it was it was just it was very confirming obviously it was very validating and yet um there was it was not what it, it, we expected because supposedly what we th- were led to believe was a background check had been done on him by his place of place of business so um so it was a a long ordeal of going and being deposed and telling a story and um and then because you no. Know, so it circles back around to the pager. So why did the Lord ask me to take my pager and give the number to Gary? It was because, um, Ray had somebody who was going to cover for him at Malio's and say that he was there from seven to 11. Well, I knew he was back at our apartment by ten twenty because I remembered looking at my clock as I was in my bed. And yet, um, didn't have any any way of of proving that and you had the timestamp and the pager um message and records of that from Gary having called me that night or having paged me that night at 8:20 so we knew he was not at Malio's from 7 to 11 he was at our apartment at at least until 8:20 and then back again at least at by 10:20 and um, so because of that, was able to undo his alibi in court and, um, testifying against him. And it was, uh, it was a big lesson to me. I guess the, the lessons from this part of the story so far were really <laughs> to, um, that the Holy Spirit it wants to be so profoundly involved in our daily lives. I mean, he was giving me that very clear sense that Ray was was dangerous, um, to be aware. And yet also I didn't have any way of getting out of the situation. I didn't have any resources, didn't have anywhere else to go to live. And yet the Lord protected me. Not even like in any way, shape or form was I physically harmed, And, um, and to tell you the truth of all of the things I've been through in my life, this is actually the one that was the least trauma. I don't feel like it was traumatizing to me at all. It was very validating. It was, um, it was an ordeal, uh, particularly testifying in court was, it was, um, was a big ordeal. Uh, just, the whole, all the proceedings, uh, court date was set, and then court was continued, so it was delayed on and off, on and off, from ninety seven until two thousand, I believe. And just living in the constant of, do I testify next week, or is it going to be drug out another month? And for that to go on and on and on for three years was was a lot. But um, but the Lord had me in that situation; it was speaking very clearly to me about. Um, the danger I was in and yet was so sovereignly protecting me that can imagine that night that I would have gotten up and, and said, potty mouth, potty mouth, Ray is a potty mouth. He had just murdered a woman and, um, and the Lord did not allow that to happen. Even though I was wide awake and rather annoyed and completely motivated to do it and ready to do it and pulling the covers back. And yet the Lord so completely powerful and so completely capable and in charge of the situation and, um, and just prevented that from happening. And, um, so it was, it was an amazing lesson because, you know, my reason for not wanting to give my pager number to Gary was because I might be embarrassed. And yet all the while the Lord was trying to get a serial killer off the streets. And, um, that's, that really stands out to me because, um, yeah, like just the, the need to listen to the Lord and the need to trust his wisdom and his plan so far surpasses my, uh, my self-concern. And, um, it's just amazing, just amazing listening to the Lord and cooperating and, um, his desire to communicate and his desire to use us in situations like that. For for a long while I had um I had kind of been frustrated with the Lord. Like why did he allow this to happen? Why did he give me enough information to know that um kind of everything about the situation except enough to stop it. And I was many years later, it's probably 20 years later was complaining to a friend about that. And she said, have you ever asked the Lord? And I said, no. And she said, well, why don't you ask him why he let that happen? And I did. And I mean, immediately, immediately I, I felt in my spirit, the Lord answer and say, because if he had given me enough information to prevent the situation, he still would have been out there on the streets. But, by the situation happening and he was able to be caught. And, um, and that's, that's really true. I mean, that's how, that's the world we live in. They don't arrest people for being creepy. And so there wasn't anything that could be done because this guy felt creepy to me. Um, and it is very sad. It's tragic that, um, another person had to die at his hands. And yet, um, I trust that the Lord in his infinite, wisdom and goodness and generosity is so, so, so able to, to repay her for that sacrifice, um, the victim. So it was, um, it was a big story to me of the Lord's, a big lesson to me of the Lord's involvement in our daily lives of his ability to communicate to us, his desire for our obedience, what a, what profound things he's looking to accomplish through us and um, you know, for myself getting hung up on the mundane details of my own self-interest, uh, just even, you know, petty stuff, like I'm going to be embarrassed. And, um, and just his, his goodness, the, the bigness of his plan, the wisdom of his plan, his, his sovereign omnipotence and ability to protect us regardless of how, um, just how it seems like we're hemmed in on every side without any resources. Um, It's just, he really knows no bounds in his ability to accomplish whatever he sovereignly chooses. And then many years later, so fast forward to last October, I was talking to a priest friend of mine about this situation. And I said, here I'll, you know, I was telling him the story and I said, here, I'll show you his picture. And so, um, so I actually, let me back that, that part of the story up. So in April of 2021, a dear friend priest of mine, um, told me that he was going to offer mass for me on the feast of St. Catherine of Siena because he knew I had a devotion to St. Catherine of Siena. And I've, that, that was just so touching to me. That was so so amazing like i felt like i was hitting the lottery or something to have mass offered for me and i mean obviously so much greater than hitting the lottery but i felt like oh my gosh what am i going to offer this for like wow this is a big deal and so so for days i was just pondering like what to make for the intention of that mass and it was really 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 clear in my gut um to offer it for ray and for his conversion and I didn't want to do it. I'm not going to lie. I was selfish and I wanted the graces for myself. And, um, and yet the Lord has made it really clear. I mean, it was pit of the stomach feeling if I didn't offer it for Ray. And so, so I did. So I made that the intention, um, of the mass. And so then, um, September of, I'm sorry, October of 2021 was telling another priest friend about the story. And I said, here, I'll show you a picture of him. And so I looked him up on, um, on Google, just on my phone. I just Google searched Ray Lamar Johnston so I could pull up his mugshot because that was always what had come up was his mugshot. Well, I did that. And instead what came up was a news article because Florida, um, Florida law changed and it became such that if somebody was given the death penalty and it wasn't a unanimous vote of the jury. All of those cases had to be retried. And so the murder that had taken place um, that he had committed prior to moving in with us, that one um, was a seven, five split and of the jury. And so it was going to have to go to trial again. And so that one, he had lied. He had said he had known this woman and, Um, and it was, you know, in a fit of anger and that sort of thing that he killed her, kind of a lover's quarrel sort of thing is how he had put it and crime of passion and everything. Well, um, it, it actually, when it was going to come to trial again, uh, he actually came forward and said, uh, you know, he was already on, he was on death row for, for the, murder of Leanne Coriel, the one, the story I just told, but he wanted to face, um, that first victim who wanted to face her family and, um, and, uh, confess to the crime and ask them for forgiveness. And so that it wouldn't be, have to be retried. And, um, I was reading the article and, and my jaw was just, dropped. And the, my priest friend was saying, well, is he out? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm Like, let me, let me share this story with you. And I was just so stunned, um, at, you know, just the, the, con- at least the, the what seems like conversion that that showed that that spoke to. And then I was reminded about the mass that, um, that, that priest friend of mine had, had said, and that he was the intention that Ray was the intention of the mass and um and it happened all, all of the time frame of that lined up it was that mass was offered um shortly before that event had taken place before he had confessed to the crime so again just the lesson of the lord's involvement right so the lord's prompting for me to offer the mass and me begrudgingly doing so and yet the Lord's still taking that grace and um and uh the conversion that 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 action seems to speak to because it, it did not benefit Ray in any way to do that. It did not benefit him in any way. And, um, and yet it did benefit the family. He confessed, he said, oh, you know, we were not involved. I didn't know her. She never gave me any reason to be unkind to her and, um, and ask their forgiveness. And so I, I was just, um, just really amazed and the Lord, you know, there's a poem by Francis Thompson about the Lord as the hound of heaven and just how he relentlessly pursues us. Now that had, I believe that was about 25 years after the murder had taken place. And yet the Lord's still pursuing Ray, you know, still pursuing us no matter what we've done, no matter, I mean, wanting our salvation, wanting our good and our conversion, no matter what we've done, and it's just, again, so much that, um, how involved the Lord is in the details and, and all of this taking place behind the scenes, you know, if I just hadn't happened to be in this particular places I was at that particular time, I would have no way of connecting all of these facts and under, and being able to see, um, the amount of the Lord's hand in this situation that I see, and yet I'm sure there's so much more that he was doing and orchestrating, even just to protect me in the situation. Um, so again, just God's ability, God's wisdom, God's majesty, God's goodness is relentless goodness and pursuit of us. So I hope this story, um, not that not going for a dramatic effect to to shock you but really just to bless you and show you how no matter what situation you're in the Lord can bring good from it and can protect you in it and just to encourage you to be open to his leading and respond to his promptings hopefully more um, more quickly than I do because you know i I know it can obviously I know it can be difficult in those moments when our own human um weakness like pinches us, and yet the goodness that the Lord is seeking to accomplish so far surpasses anything you might ever be able to imagine so um so thank you for joining me for this story. Thank you for listening to it. I ask you for your continued prayers for the conversion of Ray Lamar Johnston and all of those on death row. Um, they're clearly all souls that the Lord wants to glorify Himself through, through their conversion and to join us all in heaven someday. Um, of course, I continue to pray for the victims and, um, and their families and, um, all those who were affected. Um, but the Lord is amazing. The amazing his ability to bring good out of anything is, is unlimited. So thank you for joining me for this story. And if you're interested, I've now changed from, I am no longer doing intensive trauma therapy. I have made the change to go from doing counseling to doing coaching. So I'm doing healing, wellness, and relationship coaching. I'm happy to say that's already launched on my website at sacredhearthealingministries.com. dot com. Um, happily on coaches um, dot CatholicLifeCoaches dot uh, com. I'm on that um, network as well. If you want to take a peek at my my information on there, come to my website. You're able to sign up for a coaching session right there on directly on my homepage. That's how to do it. Um, and I'm. Um, Happy to to be moving into this new venture. My desire is to take everything that I've learned over 16 years of doing intensive trauma therapy, and to make the, um, the healing as available, um, even more available to people. Because doing coaching, um, all of the sessions are done by Zoom, so no matter where you are, you don't have to be in Ohio anymore, or in whatever state um, I'm licensed in, in order to to have a session we can do that from wherever you are from the comfort of your home and so check that out on sacredhearthealingministries.com and um there's a little assessment form that'll help me know if I'll be a good fit might be a good fit for your needs and so you can complete that I'm happy to take a look at that and um I'd just love to meet with you I'd love to be able to help you if there's anything I might be able to do for you and um also Uh, had just recently done a training on healing wellness and relationships out in the Diocese of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And then that, that was wonderful. It was a great delight to do that. And I'm looking at doing that in parishes as well. So if your parish would like such, um, such a seminar, feel free to shoot me an email, margaret at sacredhearthealingministries.com and we'll get something arranged. My, my book's, Um, More Than Words, The Freedom to Thrive After Trauma, and um, Fearless, Abundant Life Through Infinite Love are both available on Amazon.com. And Father David, my co-host who has not joined me today because I was just going to tell this personal story, but his book, Evangelizing Catholic Culture, is actually a wonderful book. It goes a lot into um, the notion of atonement in a very beautiful way. Um, And that book is available on amazon.com. So evangelizing Catholic culture by father David Tuckerhoof. Thank you for joining me and look forward to spending time with you again next week. May God bless your day. Thank you for joining me for today's show. Please subscribe and share and check us out on wholenessandholiness.com. Follow and like us on social media and to learn more about sacred heart healing ministries, Please go to sacredhearthealingministries.com.